0: I'm, I'm trying to got uh, the flash drive in there and I can't get it in for some reason.
1: That's as far as it goes?
0: Yeah, normally it goes right in. Yeah. It upside down? I've yeah. tried it the other way up. <laughs> huh. I'd so glad to see you do that because I don't feel stupid now you can. <laughs> <laughs> this
1: is the same one you've used,
0: huh? Uh, I've used it before, yeah. Mm. And it normally goes yeah? in? Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, it's, it's my backup because I've got an MP3 as well. So I mean, it's not a disaster if it do not Okay, that's right then. Thank you very much. Sorry
1: Maybe you'd like that. to
0: just check out whether there's anything with the uh, whether it's the system or whether it's my. Yeah.
1: Well, oh, he's kind of, of locked up here. I don't know
0: if I can. No, not tonight. I mean, ju- just yeah. To, you know, I'll even know. Th- yeah. Leave a note for yeah okay, that's great. Thanks and a lot.
1: Good thing you got backup. <laughs> so, all right. Thanks,
0: thanks a lot. Okay, people, I'm going to read Psalm 138. Um, So I invite you to uh, listen to it and think about what, uh, what it says to you. I give you thanks, Yahweh, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name. For your steadfast love. And your faithfulness for you have exalted your name and your word above everything on the day I called you answered me you increased my strength of soul all the kings of the earth shall praise you Yahweh for they have heard the words of your mouth they shall sing of the ways of Yahweh for great is the glory of Yahweh for though Yahweh is high he regards the lowly but the hearty he perceives from far away. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve me against the wrath of my enemies. You stretch out your hand, and your right hand delivers me. Yahweh will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, Yahweh, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Which two words kept recurring? Steadfast love love is one of them, yeah? And the other one is? Yahweh, yeah! I know it's obvious, but it's pretty important. Um, I mean, it struck me in light of what I was saying last week about the um, Psalms 42 to 83, remember, dropping out the name Yahweh, almost, but how many times has it come there? One, uh, two, three, four, five, six times in eight verses. The psalm addresses God by name. Because that name, it's so, it's so um, amazing to be able to address God by name. Like being able to say, Jesus. Be able to say, Yahweh, God has given you his name. And you can call on him by name. And then we don't. We replace it by the word Lord. We're so stupid. <laughs> but then that word steadfast love which struck me because um, somebody commented in their posting on the number of times the word steadfast love came uh, in one or two of the psalms that you'd been reading and wondered if it was significant and what the point was. Um, and uh, <coughs> it's that word that I drew your attention to, I think in connection with Ruth, that word chesed uh, that plays a key role in Ruth, uh, but plays a pretty key role throughout the Old Testament um, and is really, the, if you, you could say, the the Hebrew equivalent to the New Testament's technical word for love, the word agape, agape. Um, it's, it's a kind of love. Chesed is a kind of love that is outrageous um, in in what it does, in how far it will go. Uh, it reaches out, uh, does Chesed, when there's nothing in the person to whom it reaches out that makes them kind of morally deserve it, uh, and it and it keeps going in love and faithfulness when the person who is on the receiving end of it um, has. Um, uh, given up as, as, as um, forfeited any right to expect that god that, that God will carry on loving um, and so uh, it's not surprising really that that the psalm should give thanks to God for his steadfast love um, verse two um, and um, to declare towards the end that Yahweh's steadfast love endures forever Oh, I was supposed to be asking you what you had seen. I apologize. I've told you what I had seen. What have you seen? Well, that's what we saw, so you've robbed us of the chance to speak. Oh, I see. Uh,
1: Hmm. no matter what even going good times bad
0: times right and when you couldn't necessarily have any conviction that um, whatever was the purpose for your life was going to be fulfilled um, Yahweh doesn't give up on it yeah mm-hmm
1: Yeah. It's, it's so radically conversational in that way to, to remind you, to say you
0: know it's like my mom tells me to finish doing what I swear to have that kind of mm. Mm. relationship and yeah. to believe those
1: words rather than to just say them
0: as yeah things. yeah yeah that reminds me of something else that somebody's posting where they said they were a bit bemused by the idea of God being personal what does it mean for God to be personal um, and I was thinking, what what do we what's a person? A, a person is somebody who thinks, and who feels, and who makes about makes decisions about things, um, and who um, lives in relationship with other persons, relates to other persons. Um, those are the key, th- key things about being a person. Does anybody, uh, what else is true about it? a person? Is somebody who thinks and feels and plans, makes decisions, is in relationship with other persons. What else does being a person mean? Mm hmm. Um, you're communicating with that person, they have feelings, they have thoughts, they have yeah. ideas, they have opinions. Opinions, ideas? About, yeah. You know, what they think. Yeah. 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 You're re- you're you're communicating, you're relating to this other... When you're relating to another person, you're relating to this other person who also thinks and feels and makes decisions and is in relationship time. Yeah? I think there's something about empathy. Empathy? Often when kind of serial killers are... You know, when they're that kind of... that, They're trying to decide whether they're mentally stable or not. It's whether they feel any
1: empathy towards their victims right. or not. So right, right.
0: To be another person, yeah, okay. So, when we talk about God being personal, then we're saying God is somebody who thinks, God is somebody who feels, God is somebody who makes decisions, who has purposes, um, God is somebody who is in relationship um, within God and with us, God is somebody who um, knows that we are that kind of person and relates to us as that kind of person and um is empathetic with who we are um that do you see how that you- you reminded me of that in talking about the uh, the way in which the, the the psalmist is making that kind of assumption uh about god yeah
1: mm-hmm
0: Right. And he is emboldened. That's a great word. He is emboldened. Did you mean in life or in prayer or in both? Um, both is the right answer, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like strengthened, strengthened, yeah. yeah. You, you, can, you can go into life with a new kind of boldness, if you know that's true about God. Um, <laughs> but you can also talk boldly to God um, and... Uh, and the, but, the, but you can also talk boldly to other people, because um, when he does say at the end there, Yahweh will fulfil His purpose for me. Uh, maybe he's talking to himself, um, but also the nature of a thanksgiving, as I say uh, in a minute, is to be talking to other people. It's giving your te- it's a way of giving your testimony. So um, so when the psalm says things like. Um, Though Yahweh is high, he regards the lowly, but the hearty he perceives from far away. Um, Yahweh will fulfill his purpose for me. Um, there's a boldness in speaking out to other people because of what God, what God has done for me. makes Emboldens me to live and emboldens me to live before other people and to talk to other people. Uh, and emboldens me in what I have to say to God. I am to be reading today... Um, Isaiah chapter twenty seven, um, which, uh, twenty six, twenty seven, um, which, um, includes saying some things to God like, um, If favour is shown to the wicked and they don't learn, they don't learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, they deal perversely, and do not see the majesty of Yahweh. Yahweh, your hand is lifted up; they don't see it. Come on, when are you going to do something about it? Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Uh, there's a, a um, Yahweh in distress. Our, our fathers saw you; they poured out a prayer when your chastening was on them. Like a woman with child who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she's near her time, so were we because of you, Yahweh. We were with child, we writhed, we gave birth only to wind. We've won no victories on earth. No one is born to inhabit the world. There's a kind of emboldenedness about the way in which um, the people feel free to to speak to Yahweh. Um, Which can sometimes get you into trouble because Yahweh can then be bowled back. Um, as Job found, but then it's a per- it is a genuinely personal relationship as we've seen with the, uh, with the laments already. It's a person-to-person relationship because in a real person-to-person relationship, you can talk bold and the other person can talk bold and that's okay because you're dealing with real, it's a re- it, there's real issues, real um, relationship here. Okay, let's sing the song. Let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. Gracious God, we thank you that you are the God of steadfast love. We thank you that you are a God who invites us to address you by name. We thank you that you are a God who is a person as we are and who relates to us as persons and empathises with us as persons. We thank you for the privilege of being able to call on you and to be bold in what we say to you in our prayers and then be bold in our lives and in our thanksgiving and in our talk to other people because of what we see you do. We pray for your presence with us this evening that we may see, see more of that and other things as we study the scriptures together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, on page 74, um, and we're uh, thinking tonight about, initially, uh, about the third of the main three kinds of ways of talking to God that appear in the Psalms the uh, hymns, the songs of praise for who God always is. Uh, and then the protests or laments that say to God, but you're not being like that. Um, and then the thanksgivings or testimonies that say, but then you rescued me from that situation where uh, things weren't working out the way I'd have expected them to work out. If you were that kind of God, uh, you answered my prayer. Uh, and that makes me think of two other things immediately out of the postings. Um, one is somebody asking about the way these the psalms talk about being saved, or how that relates to being saved uh, in the New Testament sense. Um, I think it, it's confused, because we, we have attached a meaning to salvation, which isn't really much to do with what the, the way the New Testament talks about salvation, and isn't much to do with the way the, um, the word salvation comes in English translations of the Old Testament. This question does kind of confuse us. Um, I think that when we talk about salvation, we mean... Uh, in, in Christian parlance, uh, we mean going to heaven uh, and we mean being in a relationship with God now, being forgiven. Is that, is that true? Is that, will that do as a summary? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's no idea of going to heaven because heaven hasn't been invented yet. Well, it is because God's there. Uh, but, um, but until Jesus comes, there's going to be nobody going to heaven. So they don't talk about salvation in that sense because all you're going to get is shield. Boring. But not, not, um, uh, not particularly uncomfortable, just a bit of a drag. Uh, unless you like being asleep, which many people do, so it will be okay from that point of view. So there's no salvation in that sense. If by salvation you mean being, in, being forgiven and being in living, living relationship with God now, then uh, the Old Testament is full of salvation. But the confusing thing is that isn't, it doesn't talk about that as salvation. When it, talks about, when, it, when it uses words that get translated by salvation, that isn't what it means. It will talk about forgiveness, it will talk about covenant relationship, it will talk in that sense about what we'd mean by salvation, but it doesn't use the word salvation to describe. It will talk about shalom, about well-being, peace. It will talk about blessing, which are closer to what we mean by salvation. But when, it, when the English translations use salvation words, they aren't referring to what we mean by salvation. And, and so it's kind of safer if every time you come across the word salvation in an English translation, substitute a word like deliverance. Because what salvation means in the Old Testament, when the English word comes, I mean, is that you're in a mess and God got you out of it. Now that's actually what salvation means. You were in a mess, named the mess of sin, and God got you out of it, in in the New Testament sense. Uh, when the Old Testament talks about salvation, it's talking about you being in a mess and God got you out of it but it's talking about you, you being in a mess in more down to earth kind of ways so God delivered you from sickness or attacked by an enemy or something like that um, and uh, why am I talking about that? there must have been some reason oh yes I was talking about Thanksgiving there was something else out of the postings but I've lost it now it'll come back later Uh, Three ways of talking to God. uh, Praise um, and protest and thanksgiving or testimony. And I find it hard to decide which is the more appropriate term to describe um, that third way of talking to God because both are appropriate. The usual word in the textbooks that talk about the Psalms uh, is to refer to them as thanksgivings. And that's appropriate insofar as thanksgivings um, speak to God. But as, uh, as we've noted already in that one that we read just now, Uh, in 138 Thanksgivings are just as inclined to talk to other people as they are to talk to God so when they're talking to God they're doing Thanksgiving when they're talking to other people they're doing testimony or rather all the time they're doing both but the two different ways of speaking uh, reflect the two different things that are going on so we're looking at this this third oh yes I remember what the other one in the posting was now I've got it Where's where's the postings Where's my sheets of paper? (coughs) Yeah, somebody asked, um, are there more psalms of praise or lament in the book of Psalms? And should our own corporate worship mimic this in the church today? Um, Well, the the answer is, uh, half the psalms are psalms of lament or protest. And then, of the rest, uh, apart from the ones that are prophetic that are addressed from God to human beings, if you 're looking at the ones that are addressed from human beings to God, then most of them are prayers of protest or lament, and then the next biggest category would be psalms of praise, and the psalms of thanksgiving testimony would be the third smallest cat- the, the smaller of the three smallest of the three categories. Um, I would then say that in terms of our worship today uh, we are much more comfortable we 're much more used to be spending to spend the time in praise for who God, what God always is. Uh, we don't spend a whole lot of time in most churches um, telling one another what God has done for us in the past week and rejoicing on the basis of that. Uh, and we don't spend a lot of time in most of our churches telling God how terrible life has been in the last week and ple- uh, in the last week, and please, will you do something about that? Uh, and so if we wanted our worship as well as our prayer, to reflect the balance in the psalms, we've got a long way to go in terms of uh, seeking to free our worship up into the kind of richness of balance that the psalms have got. So three, ways of, um, uh, three forms of ways of speaking to God, and this is the third. Uh, and I'm going to look uh, a bit at the nature of these psalms of thanksgiving or uh, psalms of testimony that um, you'll find the outline of on page 74. Uh, and there at the top is a list uh, of them, of which you'll see there are about 15 there. Uh, it's the special stress of Klaus Westermann amongst the guys who've written illuminatingly uh, on the Psalms in the last 50 years or so. Um, he, uh, his original book about this was The Praise of God. It's called The Praise of God in the Psalms, which sounds as if it will be a really interesting book and is amazingly hard to read, um, I warn you. Uh, and I it's it's been really badly edited. Uh, I mean, it, need, it needed some editing. It was actually his dissertation, and dissertations are allowed to be unreadable, because only three people are ever going to read them. That's the three um, examiners. Uh, but it was really good that he published his dissertation. But a real shame that somebody didn't edit it first. So if you try to read it and you think this is very hard to read, you're you're okay. You've you've perceived the truth about the book. Um, there is an enlarged version of that book called "Prayers, uh, Praise and Lament in the Psalms, uh, in which he added several interesting um, papers uh, about the nature of lament to the original. More intelligible is his book um, The Living Psalms, uh, which looks at a number of examples uh, of the Psalms. What Vesterman thinks is important... Uh, again, when you write a PhD, you have to you have to be able to something you have to be able to say something new, you see, and claim that the new thing you're saying is really important. Uh, otherwise, they won't give you your PhD. It's a tiresome thing about the system, but it's just the way it works.
1: Um,
0: and he thinks it's very important that you should call Thanksgiving Psalms declarative praise rather than thanksgivings, because the nature of thanksgivings is to declare what God has done for you. Um, And if you look at it that way, you can see the link uh, between thanksgiving and testimony. Testimony, of course, meaning not me telling people what a terrible sinner was when I was age 12 uh, and then got converted when I was age 13, um, which is often what testimony means. It refers to how we got converted. Testimony in the way that um, I'm using it in connection with the Psalms is talking about what God did for you last week not what God did for you 10 years ago or 50 years ago um, in bringing you to come to know Christ. Declarative praise, as Vesterman calls it, thanksgivings, testimonies, then is praise that declares what God has done for you. And Vesterman then makes a contrast between that and the nature of hymns, which he calls descriptive praise. So hymns describe what God always is, Thanksgivings declare what God has just done for you. A praise praise like that, he notes, uh, begins in life and it's personal, but it has to become public, to become testimony. And his starting point in talking about that is the account of the Israelites giving their praise of God for bringing them through the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15, uh, where... That they they aren't in the sanctuary yet because they haven't built it. They can't go to church to give the kind of praise that Exodus 15 gives. But it doesn't stop them giving praise that when God has just, when God has just done something for you, you can't but then stand back and praise God for what God has done. But, says Vesterman, it's significant though that you don't just stop there, that you do take that worship um, into the context, you take that praise into the context of the worship of the people of God uh, in order that your... Praise can become, your thanksgiving can become public, can become testimony. Uh, and I often recall with a smile an occasion in our um, seminary chapel uh, in England when the student who was taking the chapel service invited people to um, think about what, had gone, what God had done for them in the past week and to give, give thanks to God silently in their hearts for that. Now anybody who ever wrote a psalm would have laughed at the idea. Because you can't give thanks silently, both because your enthusiasm is too great, but also because part of the point of the giving thanks is that it should be out loud so that other people hear about it. Uh, Praise begins in life and it's personal, but it must become public and thereby become testimony. Uh, Well, here's an example to add to the ones that you looked at um, for this week. Um, You looked at 30 and 118. Here's 116. Uh, I love Yahweh because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death compassed me. The pangs of shear laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, I pray, save my life. Gracious is Yahweh and righteous. Our God is merciful. Yahweh protects the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. There's that word. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for Yahweh has dealt bountifully with you. There's that word Yahweh again three, four, five, six times in the seven verses. Um, And there is the nature of a thanksgiving or a testimony psalm in those seven verses. It's declaring the praise of God that you're giving now. But the basis for your praise of God is what God has just done for you, and so giving your thanksgiving giving your testimony, the nature of it is to tell the story of what happened. and so in metaphorical in vague in unspecific terms, because this is designed for somebody else to be able to, for anybody to be able to use, um, you recall uh, that the the, the the terrible life-threatening trouble you were in, the way that you prayed. Um, and the, the fact that God answered and therefore the possibility of affirming the things to be true that you always knew to be true but that had been imperiled by the experience you've gone through so when in verse 5 the psalmist says gracious is Yahweh and righteous our God is merciful Yahweh protects the simple the psalmist saying the kind of thing you would say in a praise psalm in a, in a hymn but it's now saying it's um, on a new basis, or on a, a renewed basis, because what God has done for you, for you has given new content to the kind of things that you would say in a psalm of praise, but now you can say uh, with new um, depth and enthusiasm and conviction, because, what has gone to, got what, because of what God has done for you. For you have delivered my soul from death, um, well, my body too, because again, as usual, when the Old Testament talks about the soul, it doesn't mean the soul as opposed to the body. You have delivered my whole person from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. I kept my faith even when I said I am greatly afflicted. I said in my consternation, everyone is a liar. People are deceiving me. People are talking about me, telling untruth about me. I'm in peril maybe in the um, deliberations of the elders at the city gate when I'm being accused of something that I haven't done. What shall I return to Yahweh for, for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation, the deliverance cup, um, the, uh, the kind of uh, a, a drink offering or something that you would offer uh, in the temple, and call on the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all his people. Um, I, I told Yahweh that when Yahweh answered my prayer, I would come and bring an offering that expressed my appreciation. And now I'm doing that. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his faithful ones. In other words, um, God doesn't let it happen. Not, precious is the death, means precious is the life, would be more the way we would put it. Yahweh, I am your servant, I am your servant, the child of your serving girl. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer you a thanksgiving sacrifice and call on Yahweh's name. I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of Yahweh, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise Yahweh. If you're going to express thanksgiving, gratitude to God, then the Israelites were privileged in the fact that they had external, outward ways of doing that. There were sacrifices you could come and offer. So that your um, thanksgiving wasn't just words, which can be cheap. If you want to express appreciation to somebody, then um, it's natural to express it in a concrete, visible, physical, material sort of way. And the Israelites, uh, unlike us, were able to do that because they had the sacrificial system. Which links, incidentally with uh, the nature of the end of Psalm 51, which puzzled um, a number of people for more uh, than one reason, I think. Some of the reasons for the puzzle are to do with um, David in relation to Psalm 51. But, and we'll come back to that question later. Um, but, um, but some people were puzzled at the apparently contradictory things that were being said about sacrifice towards the uh, end of that psalm. You have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you'd not be pleased. Because if you're in a position of sin, then you can't, you, it's no good thinking you can buy God off by offering God a sacrifice. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, or God you will not despise. All I can do, given I know my sinfulness, is stand here, um, or rather bow down right flat, I imagine, um, and acknowledge that I've done wrong, and, and cast myself on your mercy. There are no sacrifices in the Old Testament that are designed to deal with sin. Now, I know this is a weird idea because um, Christians tend to think that sacrifice is mainly to do with sin. It isn't. Um, There are are no... Sacrifices can't deal with sin. All you can do when you've done wrong is catch yourself upon God's grace and God's mercy. But uh, when things are okay between you and God then you can start offering sacrifices. The the significance of sacrifice is almost the inversion of what um, Christians often think it is. The point about sacrifice is more to be able to give concrete expression to your love for God and your commitment to God and your gratitude to God than to try to um, buy God off or something. Uh, And so that's why it's natural at the end of Psalm 51 that... um, that that when the sin problem has been sorted out and if God has accepted you simply casting yourself upon his mercy and if the relationship between you and God has been sorted out and it's okay again then you can start that's when you start offering sacrifices because the relationship is okay and you can live a normal kind of life with God so that's why the psalm can end up by saying do good to Zion in your good pleasure rebuild the walls of Jerusalem then you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings then bulls will be offered on your altar When things between me and you are okay, the psalm says, then I can start offering sacrifices. I can't do that now because the relationship between us needs sorting out first. So there um, I've outlined on the sheet there the characteristic elements uh, in a thanksgiving or a testimony. Uh, which you can see in that Psalm 1.6 there's characteristically an invitation to other people to praise and or a commitment to praise on the part of the psalmist Um, so there's talk at the beginning, uh, I love Yahweh because he's heard my voice and my supplication towards the end, uh, what am I going to do uh, to to Yahweh for his bounty to me Um, I'll give praise to God There's a recollection of the experience of affliction and prayer that we've seen. Uh, There's God's response. Um, When I was brought low, he saved me, he delivered me. There's often a renewed invitation or commitment to praise, as there is in this psalm. And there's often a transition to ongoing praise, that doesn't just praise God for the particularity of what God has just done, but praises God for what God always is that, as I say, has been reinforced, my conviction about that has been, re- has been reinforced by what I've gone through. These psalms uh, uh, in, um, in Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word for thanksgiving is Todah. It's the Hebrew, modern Hebrew word for thank you. If you ever hear, if you ever land at Ben-Gurion airport and you listen to all those announcements on the PA, the thing that comes at the end of everything is Todah. Thank you. Um, Thank you is the word for thanksgiving um, and thus in this context also the word for testimony or the word for confession. Not in the sense of confession of sin. But we talk about confessing our faith and we talk about confessing our sin and the thing that confessing your faith and confessing your sin have got in common is that they are telling a story. We don't necessarily think of it that way but that's why I think the the word can be used in those two ways. When you confess your sin You are doing the kind of thing that Psalm 51 says. You are telling a story. You're saying, this is what I did. I think I uh, told you about how the story, the telling of the story in the books of Kings has been described as an act of praise of the justice of the judgment of God. The the books of Kings are a confession of having done wrong. They work simply by, by telling the story. The story kind of speaks for itself. Tell the story, uh, and it's an act of confession. And likewise, when you confess your faith, you're talking about what God has done. Something essentially narrative, story-like about confession. Uh, And uh, there's something essentially narrative, story-like about thanksgiving and about testimony. So it is, um, Vesterman points out, uh, it works, uh, thanksgiving or testimony does, more by talking about what god has done than by talking about my feelings it's you have done this more than we are so grateful um, vesterman uh, point makes that point um i can't remember whether it's whether this that the, the extra phrase there is mine or his god even has the glory in the grammar that is god is the subject of the verbs if I'm the subject of the verbs, it's funny how sometimes when we're talking about we want to give all the glory to God and we can go on and on about that but we are the subject of all the verbs. Lord, we really want to praise you. Really, really want, we, 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 we. It gives it away. If you really want to give glory to God, it's God who becomes the subject of the verbs. Uh, and that's how it is quite a lot in these Psalms of Thanksgiving.
1: Mm-hmm. Does anything in scholarship um, share about the Toda being a gesture with
0: the hand lifted up at all uh, they, you about that? um they do they, they the psalms uh, uh, the the worship involves a lot of use of the body mm-hmm. um, they uh, the hands lifted up I would think is most commonly referred to as an attitude of prayer because you you, you put your hands out because you want God to put things in them mm. it's i I kind of get amused about how probably when you were in Sunday school. Your Sunday school teacher told you, "Now, children, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and put your hands together." That's totally unbiblical. <laughs> <laughs> um, because well, but you can see why Sunday school teachers do it. Um, but, but the biblical attitude to prayer is not that your hands are like this, but your hands are like that, and not that your eyes are shut, but your eyes are open because you're looking towards God and looking for God to do it, to do something, and therefore you're lifting your head. Um, so uh, that's that's true about prayer. Uh, With praise too, there's talk about hands hands being spread like this. Um, I guess the same would be true about thanksgiving, though I don't actually remember any particular passages where it it talks in those terms. But I'd expect, I don't imagine that when you were giving thanks you'd say, Lord, we're really grateful. (laughs) I mean, come on, you're going to say, Lord, we're so grateful. Or you're saying to other people, I'm so grateful to God for what God has done for me. Yep. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, is my, under-
0: like my understanding has been it's because he. Okay. Yeah. So that's been totally wrong. Oh, that, no, that's not, no, that's not wrong. You see, again, you have, to, you have to keep, 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 keep realizing that what the New Testament does with the Old Testament doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the Old Testament's own priorities. It's, uh, not that it's wrong. I mean, that, not that the Old, New Testament is perverting the Old Testament or anything. But that the question for the New Testament guys is how shall we understand what Jesus did for us? Uh, and, and, and sacrifice is such an important feature of um, the Jewish people's religion that it was a, natu- a natural way to try to work out the significance of what Jesus did is to, um, let's try the idea of picturing Jesus as a sacrifice um, and so it, it helps the New Testament guys to understand what Jesus is about Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice in that sense um, you, you, he, not just, I mean, it. Well, yeah, the Psalm 51 is, a, is an interesting example because it does talk, it, what the psalmist says in Psalm 51 is um, You have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. Now, the point about a burnt offering is you give the whole of it to God. Many sacrifices you don't give the whole of to God, you share it with God. It's, like it's a kind of communal it's a fellowship meal. With a burnt offering, you give the whole of it to God. It's an act of total dedication. And and what Jesus does is make the ultimate act of total dedication. He gives himself. Uh, he dies. That's it. Uh, and, uh, and likewise, again, the the Old Testament does talk about... Sacri- I said the Old Testament doesn't talk about sacrifice in connection with sin. It does talk about sacrifice in connection with purification. Which isn't necessarily sin, but, but relates to sin. Um, and the image of purification then is one that you can apply you can say well what Jesus did was bring about our purification uh, but again the, the the way of thinking about it has um, has moved on it's being the the New Testament is using the way of thinking um, in in a different way from the in a way that overlaps with the Old Testament but not in a um, it, it doesn't correspond to the whole of the way the Old Testament talks about sacrifice yep Yeah. Well, purification is, is if um, if somebody dies, it's your responsibility. If somebody dies, in, someone in your family uh, dies, then you're involved in making sure that they get buried, they get their body lit, gets cleaned, uh, and, and you bury them, and so on. But you can't then go straight from you, you can't go straight from burying somebody into worship. Uh, and it looks as if the logic of that, uh, because uh, contact with a corpse makes you unclean means you need purification and the logic is probably um, that that God uh, this is the best guess about this is that the nature of God is to be the living God there's a contradiction between God and death and so for you too, as somebody who's had contact with death to come straight into contact with God kind of messes things around and so you need to be purified now there was nothing wrong with your burying your the member of your family who died it's not it wasn't a sin but it did bring about a kind of uncleanness. And so that's the difference between sin and impurity. Now to complicate it slightly, sin itself makes you impure. But sin isn't the only thing that makes you impure. Right? So, that, yeah. Does that is that okay? Um, a, a kind of side issue that arises out of Psalm 118, um, which you read for today, uh, as a Thanksgiving psalm, that it raises questions uh, about in, in terms of its ways of, way of talking about the king. Um, some of you again, wanted, you wanted to know about Psalm 118 and 30 and what not, who wrote these psalms and when. Uh, and I need to invite you to say after me, we don 't know when anybody wrote any of the psalms. Are you ready? No. We don 't know when anybody wrote any of the psalms, and it doesn't matter.
1: And and it
0: does, it does uh, <laughs> We'll come back to David in Psalm 51 uh, later on this evening. So, get used to the idea that we don't know and that it's okay. Because the reason why they are what they are, and almost I'm prepared to say, the reason why they don't tell you who wrote them is that that's irrelevant. The point about the Psalms is not for you to understand what was going on in the life or the mind of the person who wrote this Psalm, The point about the existence of the psalm is for you to be able to see how you could use it in your life. It's where you are, not where the psalmist was, that counts with regard to uh, a proper understanding of the psalm. Um, uh, But but with Psalm 118, you can see that in some way uh, it relates to the position of the king in worship. uh, And you can see that the... um, That The last part of the psalm does get quoted and applied to Jesus on Palm Sunday. Uh, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Uh, Sorry, one verse too late. Save us, we beseech you, O Yahweh. Yahweh beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. Save us is Hosanna. When um, When the people cry out Hosanna... Um, on that first Palm Sunday, they are um, saying the first word out of Psalm 118, verse 25. And they are, by implication, assuming that this psalm is about what God is going to do through the Messiah. And it's natural for them to do that, because uh, because whereas in its original context, the psalm, you can tell, is talking about something that the king that they got was involved in, The king had been involved in leading the people in some kind of action, and God had rescued them and given them deliverance and so on. Uh, Once there are no kings, then there's nobody for this psalm to apply to. No no individual king to use this psalm. And so that it can naturally become the kind of psalm that one day the Messiah will be in a position to to declare. And so that when people... um, quote Psalm 118 in connection with Jesus, they are in effect saying, we think you might be the one that we see as as going to be the fulfilment in that sense. The one who's in a position to say a psalm like Psalm 118 because you are the King of Israel. And they're acknowledging him as such. Now that doesn't mean that the psalm started off as messianic. It means that by the time you get into New Testament times, um, that kind of psalm uh, is, is, is natural to apply to the Messiah. Um, well, I've anticipated slightly what I'm going to say in, that little, in this little paragraph on page 70, 74, that a psalm such as Psalm 118 raises the question of what we make of its way of talking about the king. What I mean, when, I, when I say what we make of it, I mean what we do with it. Uh, the background to these psalms about the king is the importance of the covenant with David and with David's successors which was seen, for instance, in Psalm 89, that that one that talks in the earlier part about God's covenant with David, and then says towards the end, so why have you broken your covenant with David? Not because David is still alive, but because the covenant with David applies to um, David's successors. Uh, And you can see that, for instance, in Psalm 132. Uh, We've seen there are other royal psalms, prophetic psalms, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 45 and Psalm 110. What happens to those psalms then after the monarchy is gone? And one answer might be, they become protest psalms. That is, when you say a psalm like this, by implication you're saying to God, so where is the king who ought to be saying this psalm now? Um, or alternatively what you might do uh, is see them as applying to the, entire, to the community as a whole. There's a very interesting passage, I think, in Isaiah 59 that points in this direction. Um, it's the passage that begins, how everyone who thirsts come to the waters. And then it says, incline your ear and come to me, listen so that you may live, uh, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. I will make with you, Yal, plural, uh, an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. The, the, here's that word. There's that word chesed again. The kind of chesed commitment I made to David, I'm making with Yal. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, Yal shall call nations that Yal do not not know. And nations that do not know Yal shall run to Yal. Because of Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified Yal. In in the time uh, of Isaiah 55, the time of the exile when there are no kings, uh, what the prophecy is here saying is the kind of commitment that God made to David and the kind of commission that God gave to David is now being given to all as a people. Uh, and if that's the case, then when you uh, read one of these psalms about the king, you can say, we're all the kingly people. Back at the Exodus, God had said, um, you're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're, you're all a royal people. So the, the commitment that God made to the king was never really just meant for the king. It was for the king as representative of all of you. Um, so when you read a, a psalm about the king, you can apply it um, to, uh, to the whole people. The other direction to go, which is the one that was implicit, the one that's implicit in um, what I was saying just now about Psalm 118 in relation to the Gospels. The other direction in which you can go uh, is the one that's more familiar to us uh, of assuming that the psalms about the king relate to the Messiah. And so in Psalm 23, I beg your pardon, in Jeremiah 23, there's a really neat and naughty uh, saying of Jeremiah's. I'll, it's, I'll tell you in a minute why it's naughty. "The days are surely coming," says Yahweh, "when I will raise up for David a righteous branch." That is, David is the tr- David's tree has been cut down, um, but David's tree is not finished. A stump can come from the shoot of Je- a shoot can come from the stump of Jesse. Um, Isaiah says, and Jeremiah is using the same uh, metaphor. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's what David did. One of the neatest things that's ever said about David is he paid attention to justice and righteousness. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. So there's a future... Remember that ambiguity about the word Israel... Now, when Judah is set over against Israel, it evidently means the northern kingdom. It's Judah and Ephraim. Um, And Jeremiah knows that God has not given up on the northern kingdom, even though it was destroyed 100 years before um, this time of Jeremiah. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel! Wow! Ephraim! That doesn't exist! Will also live in safety. And this is the name by which this king will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Now, the naughtiness there is that the king of the day is called is Zedekiah, whose name means Yahweh is my righteousness, but who was nothing like that kind of guy. So Jeremiah is saying, you know, that, you know that king whose name is supposed to say something about righteousness? I'll tell you about the real king who's going to embody righteousness, whom God is coming. And here is uh, Jeremiah presupposing that the kings that there are um, uh, aren't worthy of the name, and saying that eventually God is going to fulfill the nature of those commitments to the king God is going to fulfill the messianic idea if you like to use our sort of terms <coughs> and in light of this, that kind of promise about the Messiah which doesn't use the word Messiah because the Old Testament never uses the word Messiah of a future um, redeemer I've told you that haven't I no yes I've told you that okay those of you who have forgotten somebody else has nodded so you've forgotten it's not that I haven't said it But I've said it again now. The the Old Testament uses the word Mashiach, but it never uses it about a future king. It only uses it about present kings or present priests. Uh, So it doesn't use the word Messiah that way. Um, And here it talks about a branch rather than about the Messiah. But one day, Jeremiah says, there's going to be, in our terms, a Messiah. Um, And so uh, the fact that you have only unsatisfactory Messiahs now And the fact that in just a very small number of years, 10 or 20 years after this, there won't be a present Messiah at all, there won't be a king at all, um, doesn't alter the fact that God will eventually send you that Messiah. And therefore, when you read these, that's the basis when you read these Psalms, for seeing them as kind of descriptions of what the Messiah will be. Uh, Prayers and praises that the Messiah will be in a position to use when the Messiah comes. So when you read those psalms about the king, you can um, use them in one of those other... There are, there are several directions in which you can imagine uh, Israelites using them. Um, using them as kind of protests, uh, using them as declarations of what's true about the entire um, kingdom of priests that they are, or using them uh, in such a way as to apply to the future king. Um... Uh, uh, uh the next two pages in the um, syllabus and course notes um, I'm going to need to skim a bit um, but let me just say something brief about them Uh, the, the next two about three pages are about how to pray for the government or how to pray for your nation and Psalm 72 is, seems to me to be a superb example uh, of what's involved in praying for the government. It talks about the king again, but the central point is not that it's a king as opposed to some other form of government. It's about what the government's job is. Um, and it's another, it's another naughty passage, because uh, it says at the top, of Solomon... Um, And uh, when you look at Solomon, you can see Solomon in some ways doing the kind of things that this psalm says, but in other ways not. Any king who reads this psalm ought to feel uncomfortable. When they're praying this psalm in the temple, then they're saying, this is what you're supposed to be, right? Give the king your justice, O God, in your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, crush the oppressor, and so on. That's what government is for. It's the economy, stupid, says the tag. No, it isn't, says Psalm Psalm 72. It's caring about the poor and needy, stupid. Uh, The key ideas that are brought together then in Psalm 72 in terms of how to pray for the government... I've listed lifted there listed there on the sheet Mishpat a word for judgment or decision making Tzedakah a word for justice or faithfulness Yesha that's the word for salvation or deliverance Shalom the word for peace or well-being Barakar, the word for blessing fairness and prosperity and prayer and witness and fame and victory are extraordinarily linked in Psalm 72 in the prayer for government. Um, I'm going to skip on that page there, the President's Vision for the USA, which you can read later if you want to. And on the next page, page 76, there are two, um, two versions of Psalm 72 turned into hymn form, and you could have a look at those afterwards and see which you think is more faithful to Psalm 72 itself. But because of time, I'm going to jump on to page 77, How to Pray for Your Nation. With some things out of a book by Eugene Peterson called Where Your Treasure Is, Psalms that summon you from self to community. In which he studies 11 Psalms, he says, that shaped the politics of Israel and can shape the politics of America. Uh, There's a list of them with his titles for the chapters and um, some suggestions that he makes about uh, reading the Psalms in this connection. But I'm just going to read the quotes from the other bottom. Prayer is political action. That we have not collapsed into anarchy is due more to prayer than to the police. The single most widespread misunderstanding of prayer is that it is private. The best school for prayer continues to be the Psalms it also turns out to be an immersion in politics. Prayer was the psalmist's characteristic society shaping and soul nurturing act. Two psalms are carefully set as an introduction to the Psalter. Psalm 1 is a laser concentration on the person. Psalm 2 is a wide-angle lens on politics. We love Psalm 1 and we ignore Psalm 2. We often imagine that the psalms are private compositions. All of them are corporate, all were prayed by and in the community. We are made citizens of a kingdom, that is, a society. God teaches us the language of the kingdom by providing us with the Psalms, which turn out to be as concerned with rough and tumble politics as they are with the quiet waters of piety. Um, what i suggest you do now is talk to the person next to you for a couple of minutes about how in your church you pray for the nation and how you pray for the government Uh, but you could also talk if you want to about some of those things i was talking about earlier about how we do thanksgiving how we do testimony and maybe how we might do it more in a church context talk to the person next to you for a few minutes Okay.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, anybody want to um, say anything about that or ask anything about that?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a question about how do you pray for evil leavers? <laughs> like, how do you pray for.
0: Yes. I think that's r- who said that.
1: What? Jesus strike them down. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I
0: mean
1: that's what you you want them to come mm. to God, right? Because you
0: that's not your primary concern. Your primary concern is for people to be delivered from them. <laughs> and at least to judge uh, to judge from Old Testament and New Testament, I'd say, um, yeah, yeah it doesn't matter because if you think that, it, that, this, that a good leader is an evil leader and you say to God strike down that evil leader God will say oh, not so much So <laughs> it's, no, it's no problem it's, it, that's the problem when you're going to try and just strike down the evil leader yourself that's the great advantage of leaving it to God so you don't have to worry about it you remember when you pray you're a child talking to a father you can say what you like Yep.
1: How do you translate from a kingdom, a monarchy, to a democracy in terms of in terms of how we pray? Cause it feels like that's a little bit different in terms of.
0: Well, I don't see it making a difference to say Psalm seventy-two because what you're praying for, you're praying. If in our context, you're praying about the president and and the Congress and the Senate, it's, um, it, it the the priorities that the psalm is concerned about uh, are the essence of the thing. The, the fact that it happens to be a monarch. It uh, doesn't make any difference to what what they're asking for is what the government does. They're not talking about who the government is. So I don't I don't see it makes a difference really. So. Um. Okay, let me. All right, one more. Go on.
1: So I'm Presbyterian, and in my church, uh, people often feel the need to pray in the prayers of the people for like everything happening in the world, hmm. um, and it can become like this really long prayer, hmm. um, and it's it almost seems like people feel like obligated, I have to mention this thing that happened in, like, you know, India last week or whatever. I've got to mention this happened in France or something like that. So, uh, do you you think, I mean, it just seems unfruitful to me sometimes. Mm. we're just kind of naming, Mm. oh, God, and we acknowledge that this earthquake happened, we pray for these people. What does it mean to say that you just pray for those people? I mean, is there a better way of praying for the nations that's a little more...
0: The nearest i 've got to any kind of insight on that is that i find I find the Olds image of um, that the Old image of prayer is you're being admitted into the cabinet into god 's cabinet uh, and god's cabinet is making decisions about what happens on earth uh, and and so when you pray, you are drawing the cabinet 's attention to some things that it ought to uh, consider and do something about uh, and and I think that therefore. I find I feel fine about saying to God in my own prayers about naming people to God. I'm just I'm kind of reminding the cabinet, don't forget so and so. And and so I think that's okay. We don't have to do it with everybody, but if we simply name them, we are drawing the the heavenly cabinet's attention to peoples that it needs to um, do something about. I think that's okay. I think that the so that's one image, one insight that I find helpful out the Old Testament. The other one is the. The concreteness of the way these psalms talk particularly the protests Uh, and so for instance in our in our church where we are less than a mile uh, away from where that um, African-American kid got um, shot by the police uh, three or four weeks ago Um, then I think every Sunday since then we've talked to God in the prayers of the people about that kid and his parents and the police and whatnot Um, uh, simply saying yeah simply drawing God's attention to that and asking God to be involved in the situation yeah, you're, well that's a good thing. Yeah, go on. Uh, getting, you're getting particular that's right. things yeah. and
1: you want to see God move and act on, yeah. you know, in, in relationships and yeah. intentions that are live. And that just seems a lot more productive to me than just sort of acknowledging,
0: I don't know. I don't know. Well, uh, well, as I say, I think the fact that the cabinet is responsible for what goes on in India um, makes it an appropriate thing to do to draw its attention to, the, to an issue there, even, if it, even though it doesn't feel as immediate. Though, um, I think, yeah, there's a lot to be said for being concrete. And, and it may be that our, I don't know uh, whether, I think I was, I was probably rude the other day, the other week about uh, the American assumption that America needs to sort out the entire world. Um, and, uh, and maybe this is another example that, that, that maybe we feel that we need to talk about the entire world because the U.S. feels responsible for the entire world, um, and maybe we need to release ourselves from feeling responsible for the entire world, uh, and and maybe that's maybe at the nature of those prayers is an expression of, of that. I don't know. Maybe just pick a couple. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, be be concrete about some other part uh, of of the world, maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, but, and yeah.
1: I think sometimes in relation to what you're saying, the flip side of that. We were talking. I was kind of thinking of my own internal response. Um, sometimes the lack of prayer for like, you know, government or, or whatever going around the world seems to come from. We almost believe, or we do believe, that we have to have an emotional response
0: for a prayer to count. Yeah, that's right. That's that's right. That's and so right. Then we don't, that's right. We kind of like when somebody starts bringing up
1: different names or different words or different governments. Mm-hmm. We're like, mm. you know, that doesn't really. Yeah. does really count. Yeah. So then we just kind of stop because we're not, we don't feel any response. And so, like, even when, when somebody asks us to pray for an ant, mm. you know, we, we kind of imagine, oh, well, they feel something, so now I feel something. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Yeah. Works. Yeah. And I mean, I mm. guess. I think that's the, right. The, the stepping in front of the cabinet, mm. you know, fits into that. But at the same time, like, it seems like it'd be really easy to discern if you were part of the cabinet, somebody walked in there and was like, didn't really care. They were just like, yeah, it's my job to, like, remember President Obama. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, as, as far as our, our... I understand what you're saying about bringing up a name before God is just as far as that, but I, mean, I guess I'm kind of dealing with my own heart in this is, as far as, like, am I just doing this because I should? Which is sort of
0: related to, like... It's know, fine to do things because you should. Some of you are here in class tonight because you should. <laughs> 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 there's lot to be said for doing things because you should. You know, Some of us don't commit adultery because we shouldn't. Uh, you know, that's, there's a lot to be said for should. <laughs> you reminded me of something else, which I, I think... Uh, they, we, I mean, if, ever get, if any government, if any country needs prayer, it's the United States. And if any governmental system is dysfunctional and in total chaos, it's ours. So we ought to be praying passionately for the government to get its act together in various respects. And that would be much more... Might be much more... Well, what, I'm not going to use the word productive, whatever productive means. Much more important it's much more important to draw the cabinet's attention to the mess that we were in politically than a lot of other things. I need to get on, so one more, then, then I need to get going. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say something else that. I, sometimes I find myself in a situation where I just have to ask that God would probably care. Like, oh, right, yeah. Like, do you think that, mm-hmm. I don't know, yeah, it, sometimes we just pray because this is, this is an issue that God cares about, but God may and care about it the way we do mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Uh, I want to go on to page uh, 78. Um, and I want to talk about the prayer testimony process, which is in a way what we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, and how that can get short-circuited. Here's where, as far as I can see, prayer thanksgiving or prayer testimony is supposed to work in Scripture. One, you pray. Two, some servant of God brings God's yes, and that's what I call answer to prayer stage one. Number three, you express your response of trust in that. Number four, God acts. That's answer to prayer stage two. Number five is you praise God publicly. What it, what strikes me is the number of examples you can see in scripture of how that process gets short-circuited. So, to start with, um, Sarah, who doesn't pray for a baby, as far as we know. And God says yes anyway. That's a tr- God, you can never kind of get God into a box. It's really frustrating. <laughs> Sarah should never be because she doesn't pray. The cabinet is not limited by that fact. So God says yes anyway. Sarah sometimes tries to fix things herself and sometimes laughs in disbelief. God acts anyway. Sarah praises God for giving her a different laugh. Or Hannah, who I mentioned, um, Hannah prays. Initially, Eli misreads the situation. Hannah puts him right. And then Eli does bring God's yes. Hannah expresses her response of trust. God acts. Hannah praises God. Uh, In the uh, story of Jesus' birth, uh, Zechariah prays. Gabriel brings God's yes. Zechariah doesn't believe it. Isn't it funny when God answers your prayer and you don't believe it? (laughs) Gabriel says that Zechariah won't be able to talk at all then. But it doesn't stop God acting, God acts. Zechariah gets his voice back and praises God. Um, Short circuit number 4, Luke 17. Uh, Ten people with skin disease call on Jesus. Uh, You know it's not leprosy. We have talked about leprosy, haven't we? No, we haven't talked about leprosy. Okay, it's another of these things that... When the Bible talks about leprosy, uh, modern translations often don't use the word leprosy because it's not a, the kind of disease that makes your limbs kind of crumble and, and disintegrate um, it's, it's a skin disease, actually it fits with things we were talking about earlier on, about purification uh, it's kind of more like psoriasis or something of that kind some way in which the skin is... Um, is your skin is falling apart so it looks actually as if the body... As in, the, in the story of Miriam getting um, this skin disease in, in the book of Numbers it makes this and draws this analogy it's as if it's, 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 you start looking as if, look, looking the way a corpse looks um, and, and so it's something that reminds people of death, that looks, like, looks deathly and, and so it has the same um, uh, kind of status almost uh, as, um, as death and that's why uh, that, that sort of skin disease, uh, that kind of skin ailment, it's not necessarily disease but that kind of skill phenomenon. Uh, is something that brings impurity upon you, and therefore you can't can't rush into the presence of God because you um, will bring that impurity into the place that stands for the presence of God. So I'm talking about them not as ten lepers, but as ten people with skin disease. Uh, They call on Jesus. Jesus brings God's yes. They express their response of trust. God acts. Only one of them comes back to praise God. Number five, the Canaanite woman calls on Jesus. Jesus says no. She won't accept no for an answer. So he says yes. She expresses her response of trust. And God acts. Her um, expressing her praise is missing from the story. But maybe it's implicit in the story being here in scripture at all. Um... Short circuit number six, the story of um, Jesus from Gethsemane to the cross, well to afterwards. Jesus prays, nobody answers. Jesus expresses his response of trust. God abandons Jesus, but then God acts and raises him from the dead. And Jesus praises God. And I think it's really neat that the... um, that the praise that hebrews puts on jesus lips uh, in hebrews chapter two um, is, uh, comes from psalm twenty two from that anticipatory praise at the end of the psalm when at th- the end of psalm twenty two there's that sudden transition that you'll noticed uh, when we looked at psalm twenty two uh, and so as the uh, earlier part as the gospel story draws attention to links between the content of the earlier part of psalm twenty two Uh, And what was going on on the cross, um, not least with Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Hebrews picks up the last part of the psalm, uh, the declaration of um, uh, worship for what God has done in restoring, when it says, says, for this reason Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Um, a, uh, a process then of prayer and testimony that the psalms, um, well, that the, the, the psalms I think imply, but that you also see illustrated in various of those um, stories. And, and the neat thing about those examples is you don't, you don't have to worry too much if it goes wrong because God can make it go right anyway. Um, finally, before the break, with regard to the content of the... Um, course notes Uh, the next page page 79 uh, anyone can give their testimony talks about the um, the way in which we could apply the way that these testimony psalms work to our own testimony and you need to read that because you're going to write a testimony for next time Um, let me see if there's any other postings i could uh, pick up Oh yeah, several people noticed how Psalm 118 um, almost speaks with two voices about: is it is it God who's bringing about deliverance, or is it human action that brings about deliverance? Uh, And the, uh, in a way, the the phrase that holds the two together is the phrase, "In the name of Yahweh, all nations surrounded me. In the name of Yahweh, I cut them off." They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side, in the name of Yahweh I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, they blazed like a fire of thorns, in the name of Yahweh I cut them off. What does Psalm 118 say about the ability of humans to do things in the name of Yahweh? Um, How are we to understand the psalmist's claim to have cut down the surrounding nations in the name of Yahweh? If the Psalms are primarily calling on God to bring action against their enemies, then this seems to stand in contrast other people bring action against their enemies in Yahweh's name Um, yeah and there are both of those Uh, the um, the the Psalms do the Old Testament as a whole makes the assumption that God works through human beings and in particular that God works through Israel's politics uh, and that's one of the ways in which God implements his purpose in the world uh, is by their taking action to put down enemies now, it's um, in the Psalms, at least, maybe in the Old Testament as a whole. Yeah, probably in the Old Testament as a whole, it gives more space to the assumption that Israel doesn't do anything uh, and relies on God to act than it does to than it gets, than the space it gives to the human beings taking action. Um, but it does certainly talk about the human beings taking action. It assumes that God uh, rules in the world by means of the Davidic king, that God's in, God's plan, as it were is to implement his reign in the world by means of the Davidic king uh, and that taking action against the peoples who oppose Yahweh and oppose Israel is one of the ways in which God works. It does, it does presuppose that. Um, it's, um, it's part of the way in which God purposed to work through Israel. Um, yeah, it's just there. The assumption in the psalm uh, is that it wouldn't work out? It wouldn't work out that way if Yahweh wasn't involved. Otherwise, if the people had simply gone on, gone out, and fought their battles and won them on their own, they wouldn't need to come back and give thanks to Yahweh for the extraordinary nature of the victory that they'd won. Uh, but the presupposition of the psalm is is, is, that, the, is, the, is that against all the odds, that they win victories. Uh, one of the um, Strong motifs, again, particularly in Isaiah, uh, with regard to all this, is the motif of trust in Yahweh. Now, when we make war as a nation, we make war on the basis of um, whether it's in our interests uh, and whether we think we can win. Um, God expects Israel to make war uh, on the basis of what he will do in light of what's right. uh, And to do so thus on a basis of trust, uh, not on the basis of calculation in that sense. It does also assume, uh, P- Professor Stassen wants to, w- w- uh, wants to make a big link between Isaiah's stress on trust and, and nonviolence. And there is a link uh, between that. That is, that. that is, if you go radically for nonviolence, then that implies a radical kind of trust. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's trust involved in doing nothing quite a lot. Um, but there's also trust involved in doing something, not because you are the big nation, because Israel hardly ever is. Israel is usually the little nation. And goes out and does something really stupid, uh, humanly speaking, because God tells her to go and do so. Uh, And the psalm is then in a position to testify to what God has done extraordinarily uh, on the basis of the fact that that's what God decided to do because that was the right thing in the situation. Okay, go away. Come back in 20 minutes.